Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome. Hello and welcome to show 379. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Well, SofaCon 2 has just gone. Oh, tell you all about it in the day's show. Don't forget, first off, this show is sponsored by Octagon Technology, along with Octagon and everybody else who kind of put in a pledge for SofaCon. A big thank you. That's the old heart there. A big thank you from the bottom of my heart for me again, SofaCon 2, a roaring success. And honestly, bigger and better than last year, you know, last time we did it. What a show, man. Oh, just some memorable moments, man. Joe Haldeman talking about the kind of the experience in the Vietnam War. I just listened to him getting interviewed by Cheryl Morgan. Oh, and David Brin. Man, damn, I should be seeing me kind of intro now for the sponsorship, but David Brin, what a character. So animated and, you know what I mean? Changed his shirt twice because he was sweating. Oh, it was fab. But anyway, this show is sponsored by Octagon Technology. They can supply hosted exchange services for companies across the UK. Octagon Technology, 1995 to 2015. 20 years, 20 years of helping people and companies with their IT projects and problems. Get that. Big thank you to Clive and Diane. Like I say, jumped in there with a kind of lovely support for Starship Sova and, you know, SovaCon. We wouldn't have had it, you know, made if it wasn't for everyone kind of chipping in there with SovaCon too. So Diane and Clive, thank you so much. You know, I think the gut-wrenching thing was, I don't think, I think something came up in Clive's calendar and he couldn't make the thing to come over to kind of SovaCon, but we were there and we had a blast. 
I'll tell you a little bit about it. Honestly, it was just fab. We uh, we had Rachel Swarsky open up with a kind of speech, and it was just lovely just to listen to kind of some of the kind of comments on things. And what was really good as well, Rachel on the next day was on a women women destroy science fiction. You know the light speed, pu- <coughs> excuse me, pu- special publication. She was on that panel with Wendy Wagner and Heather Clitheroe, and she. she said something that just got the hairs on the back of my neck, you know, because it's all about, you know, women in science fiction and not recognised and, you know, even today and me being as naive as I am, didn't think there was a problem, but there is still a problem. But Rachel actually said, you know, and it was lovely the way she said it, it's getting better. Do you know what I mean? And I kind of, straight, it's funny how these kind of things kind of connected for us, you know what I mean? And it's just the way it, it said it, you know, and she said, it's getting better and that gives us hope. And straight away, kind of this, this word hope just kind of fired off signals because didn't I, you know, interview Gene Wolfe and I says, what does science fiction mean to you? And a couple few years ago, he said, hope. And it just brought this circle round. Do you know what I mean? The, the circle just joined up for us. And it was just like almost an epiphany moment. Do you know what I mean? Where I was like, oh man, I get it. I get it. I get why I love science fiction. Do you know what I mean? Why I want to kind of keep on pounding it out there and kind of enjoying it and you know that the hence why I want to kind of put myself through the YouTube kind of way just to kind of get this you know what it can mean and what it does to kind of me and what it does to anybody else do you know what I mean it's such a feel-good factor just to talk about it do you know what I mean that's for me anyway do you know what I mean I'm hoping other people kind of like it as well but like I say what a what a kind of performance you know what I mean and Two days takes it out of you. Do you know what I mean? It's just kind of I sit down at kind of five o'clock each night and I'm kind of basically leaving, you know, switching things off at about 11 o'clock. And I'll tell you what was really good, man. The quiz. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy up again. Man, they are ruthless. They trounced stupefying stories. Oh, and a big, huge score as well. So it was fantastic. I loved it, man. I loved it. I don't actually like... Being involved in it, you know, like the live thing, I'm kind of dip. Well, you cannot, to be quite honest, I've kind of realised you cannot run it and, you know, take part in panels. And, and I wouldn't do that anyways, you know what I mean? But take part in that, you've just got to, I've got to honestly focus on the back engine side and just making it go, you know, right. And by all accounts, do you know what I mean? It went, it went swimmingly, so I'm chuffed a bit, to be quite honest. The big question, SovaCon 3. <clears throat> excuse me, who who can tell? I don't know, like I say, 2D events, man, it did take it out of us, do you know what I mean? It was just kind of, and it's not just the kind of, the, the two days, I could kind of hack that, you know, I had four days off, you know, and the funny, the next day, after it all finished, I did book a roll, do you know what I mean? I just kind of wallowed in glory, lad. Hey, did nothing that day, not a dot. But, do we do it, you know, like I say, testing people. This is, and I've been kind of listening to a few people talk about it. And, you know, I was testing, oh, it's like 30-odd people, you know, like guests and that that I had on. You know what I mean? It's just mind-boggling. I might, like, try and change the test and get them all done in a week. Do you know what I mean? Because it's just kind of, it's hard bloody work, to be quite honest. So we'll see how it goes. But I'm kind of interested now, I'm just kind of maybe running a couple of, like, one-day events throughout the year. Again, celebrate. Do you know what I mean? Like, I was thinking of maybe a kind of Philip K. Dick, the best, you know, like Philip K. Dick, you know, and and maybe another one, Why Science Fiction Rocks. Just like celebrate science fiction in all its glory, you know. Who can tell? 
But anyways, let's move on. Now, young Jeremy, the assistant editor for Starship Sova, lives in Australia. When we started SovaCon 2, it was five o'clock in the UK. It was four in the morning for Jeremy. But you know, listen, he wants to, he's got to start at the bottom. He's got to work his way up. So young Jeremy was there on the dot, bright and breezy, four o'clock. And the next day, I says, you can have a lie in. Do you know what I mean? Kind of, I got him on the end of the, the event. <coughs> my voice is still kind of going. <laughs> I lost my voice. So I had young Jeremy on as well. It was lovely just to kind of introduce everyone to Jeremy. Do you know what I mean? And just put a face to him. You know what I mean? A few of the, you know, a few of the ladies and a couple of the men were, oh, nice looking young man, you know, and a few of the grandmothers. So I had Jeremy on there. And it was lovely, like I said, just to have him on and kind of have a nice little chat with him, to be quite honest. And before SoberCon, we've, we've kind of come up with an idea because I'm like always wanting kind of people to kind of throw us ideas, you know what I mean, and give us ideas. And Jeremy says, oh, I would mind doing a couple of interviews. And we kind of cracked on this idea where up-and-coming magazines or just brand-new magazines, if Jeremy wants to just kind of jump in, 10, 15-minute interview with them, you know what I mean? That would be lovely. So we've got young Jeremy is doing a little interview this very minute there, and I've had a listen to it, and it is really rather... Watch me job, to be quite honest. The old fellas there, clamouring at the heels. Jeremy's going to interview with the editor, publisher, Gridark Magazine, Gridark, Grimdark, sorry, Gridark, I'm kind of... I need glasses, you know. Grimdark Magazine, Adrian Collins. Next up, after that, we've got Neighbours which is the short story by Megan Lindholm. And anyone remember Megan Lindholm? Yes, Robin Hobb. And actually, the last story we played, which was a, a few months ago there, one of our kind of biggest, brightest stars there, loads of downloads on it. Do you know what I mean? It was just rather stupendous, yes. This is narrated by Peter Nixon. So we'll get to that straight after our little interview with Jeremy. Hello there, this is Jeremy Zahl, your assistant editor for Starship Sofa. Uh, my boss, Tony, has passed out an alley somewhere, stinking drunk, so I'll be taking part in this. Um, can you smell that? The scent of burning flesh, of uh, severed limbs. It's because this is Grimdark Magazine time, more specifically an interview with uh, the editor of Grimdark Magazine, a new, uh, yeah, a new magazine for, or for fiction that's on the more grittier, edgier side. They've only published two issues, but so far they've managed to publish authors such as um, Adrian Trofsky, Cameron Hurley, uh, Richard K. Morgan, Ascot Backer, Mark Lawrence, Jarabo Crombie, and, more importantly, me. So, uh, Adrian Collins, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jeremy. Uh, no problem. So, basically, for those of the uninitiated, what is Grimdark? Um, Grimdark has plenty of definitions out there at the moment. They're constantly shifting and changing as the genre kind of uh, settles into its foundations. My personal opinion is that Grimdark is a grim story told in a dark world by a morally ambiguous protagonist. I think that Grimdark uh, glories in perspective, so it, it glories in, in especially the anti-heroes and the, uh, and the antagonists. And I think that Grimdark probably has the best anti-heroes and antagonists going around in modern fiction. And they just uh, it, it presents humanity from some different perspectives and I think that's why so many people are you know finding that they can relate to these characters that the authors are presenting to us mm. yeah essentially because we are talking about fantasy and science fiction worlds that 
realistically do not exist or cannot exist. But uh-huh. these are characters that are human, that are down to earth, and it's something we automatically have a connection to. It's something related, uh, relatable. It makes the most alien of worlds uh, really feel like it, they could uh, be around the next corner. So exactly, and yeah. I think in um, in the stories that we buy as readers, we we buy into characters most of all. You know, these the grim story and the dark world they create a brilliant setting, but unless you have characters that are engaging and that you can, you know, really relate to, it's like you, you kind of struggle to enjoy fiction, I think. Mm, definitely. So tell us, why did you start off the magazine? Um, there are a few reasons. Um, first and foremost, I'm a fan. Uh, you know, George Martin, Joe Abercrombie, Cameron Hurley, all these guys are just doing such fantastic different work to what I grew up reading through the um, through the 90s and, and early thousands that um, yeah like I said first and foremost I'm just a massive fan of these guys and it's just a um, it's an absolute honor to be able to publish um, a lot of their, their interviews their excerpts and, and their stories um, secondly from a business perspective there is a growing market for this sort of, of fantasy so um, you know, obviously, I think we can probably all thank um, Game of Thrones being converted mm. into a television series for the, um, I guess, explosion of, of popularity that the genre is getting. Um, and basically, what, what I've done from a business perspective is just play off that and try to uh, create a market that, you know, respects our authors, pays authors correctly for their uh, for their contributions to the magazine, and you know. Gets, gets our readers involved, you know, engages them on social media and, and um, you know, get, gets them reading and reviewing and, you know, just basically continues the conversation to push our, our genre ever further. Um, finally, from, you know, my own writing perspective, I, I really just, um, you know, this is one of the smaller reasons, but I really just kicked this magazine off because I wanted to be around people who had the same obsession um, with this sort of fiction. So, you know, where, where I grew up, um, unless you were a surfer, a footy player, or a, um, a musician, you know, anything you did was not really that all that popular. Um, you know, I, I could do most of those things, I just could never do them very well. Um, so this was my way of, you know, gathering a few people around me that, you know, I could converse and, and publish and, you know, just, just work with. And I've been very lucky in that, the authors um, have responded to what I've done really well. And secondly, the people who volunteered for the magazine have just been, oh, mate, their blood's worth bottling. They've been fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's great to know that you're really so enthusiastic. So essentially another thing about Grimdark is that the people consider that label to be a negative. Why would you say that is? Um, I actually think it's one of the, uh, you know, it's kind of a funny story. You know, it started out as a bit of a, a poke at the Warhammer 40,000 world, <laughs> yeah. which was, um, you know, their tagline, oh, geez, what was it? It's uh, in the grim future. No, the grim. The grim the future grim is always future, dark. The, there is only war or something like that. Mm. Or the darkness of the far future, there is only war. And, you know, it was kind of like they've someone's taken that and started using that to... Um, I guess kind of, you know, take the mickey out of some of the authors that are a bit darker and, you know, a bit grittier and, yeah. and edgier. And then, you know, they've kind of used it as an insult. And like so many things in, you know, for example, music, they've, um, you know, the fans and the authors have taken on that, that name and we've turned it into a subgenre. Yes. Yeah. It's, you know, like so, I said, I think it's quite funny and it's something that I've enjoyed being a part of. Um, yeah. Why yeah. have they done that? I think that, 
you know, during the 80s and 90s especially, um, I'm not really old enough to, to comment back, you know, far back beyond that because I didn't really experience it. But during the 80s and 90s especially, the type of fantasy that was out there was quite clean. So you had clean hero- heroism, um, clearly defined morals, uh, you know, versus your irredeemable dark lords, you know, with their, their dark, you know, their evil dark elves or their pointlessly animalistic orcs, you know, things that you don't really care if your protagonist just goes through and cuts down a few thousand of them. Um, you know, in the background, you had guys like George Martin, you had Glenn Cook, uh, Robin Hood, uh, sorry, Robin Hobb. Um, they were amongst it, but they really didn't have the impact that they have um, that they have now. And I, again, you've, you've got to appreciate that um, Game of Thrones being televised mm. is probably one of the major causes for, for this sort of thing to come out. And so with that sort of popularity, I think it was almost like this beautiful piece of timing that when Game of Thrones came out, you've also have a whole lot of stuff out there by Joe Abercrombie, Mark Lawrence, Weeks, Miller, Hurley, Sanderson, you know, a huge amount of volume out there that, you know, could ride off the the coattails. And I'm sure a few of these authors, if they hear this, they're, uh, they're going to want to throw a bottle at me. But, um, you know, they're riding off the, the coattails of this uh, amount of exposure. And that means that, you know, people who were used to their very clean-cut fantasy all of a sudden having... Uh, very publicly, the, the sort of stuff that they really quite uh, dislike, or they, you know, they don't want to read, um, being pushed at them from social media, in their mm. bookstores, um, you know, pretty well anywhere you can look as a reader. Um, and so I think that, uh, like I was saying before, you know, it's, it's it happens in so many creative industries, such as you know, such as music, where you know these things kind of take off as a reaction to something. I think grimdark fantasy. Um, as you'd see in probably many an interview with um, Joe Crombie, Mark Lawrence, most of the writers, um, you would see that it is a reaction to so much clean-cut fantasy that people just got sick of not being able to relate to these mm. uh, relate to these protagonists and to even relate to the antagonists. Yeah, and by definition, art is something that. Um it's a ref- it's a statement. It's a reflection. It's a subversion. And like as you said, like, you've got all these clean cut super uh, heroes that like butter wouldn't melt in their mouths. And suddenly now you've got Mark Lawrence's work where the main character is a psychopath. It's mm-hmm. a, it's a complete subversion. You take something and then you're going to get someone who does the complete opposite for the sake of it. It's a definition of art. And it's yeah. just it's the same with Game of Thrones. People were. Um, uh, Suddenly, everyone was just criticizing. Oh, they're so gritty! It's so violent. What you mean? You can you can actually kill someone, and there's consequences. No, no, no! I don't want that in my fiction. What rubbish! It's nihilistic. It's bad. But then suddenly, Game of Thrones comes along as an explosion of popularity, and then suddenly now all this other stuff like Joe Abercrombie and Paolo Bacigalupi, Ian McDonald, all these other authors is just flooding the market, and people like. Uh, people are saying, criticizing it for being too gritty, being too racist, being too uh, dark, brutal, sexist, etc. As if it was something new to science fiction or fantasy. It's always been there. It just hasn't been as popular. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think that we also really need to appreciate um, the sheer volume of skill that goes into mm. making you, as a reader, like a character such as uh, George and uh, George Ancraft. Oh, I mean, definitely, that, yeah. That itself is is an achievement it's one thing to make uh, somebody like a you know like i said a clean-cut hero who's saving the world from a horde of zombies that's one thing but to make you like someone who's not is the absolute opposite i think is just a feat in itself yeah because a lot of people can uh, 
would say that grimdark essentially by definition means more bloodier, more guts, more destruction, more violence. But in reality, it's the complete opposite. It's almost as if it's almost a criticism of the whole term that violence is as easy as just pulling the trigger or um, uh, cutting someone in half and he needed killing, so he's gone. It's not as simple as that. And I think grimdark essentially almost criticizes that. It's almost like an, uh, a war story that's an anti-war story, like Apocalypse Now is Saving Private Ryan. It's a portrayal of something. It's not exactly condoning of it, but it's a portrayal of the more harsher, gritty, harsher and grittier side. And yeah, so, yeah. I, I also think that there is also a, in, in my personal opinion, there's also a misconception that Grimdark has to be war. It yeah, has definitely to be, not. You know, prolonged massive sword fights fought out in the slippery mud. You know, elbow mm. deep in in your opponent's guts and and whatnot. I think that also, you know, if you look at someone um, like Scott Lynch, you know, basically that is not a story that is obsessed in violence. That's a story that you know talks about you know the lies of Lucky Lamora is about con men, and you know from their perspective they are talking about. You know, from their perspective is that they want to, you know, they want to live, they want to thrive, you know, they want to win and, and they want to survive. But you know, from if you look at them from what they actually are, they're criminals that are screwing mm. people out of their money. Mm. And to me, in my opinion, um, that is what Grimdark is about. It's about perspective. So it's about taking these characters that are quite often antiheroes. And finding a way to make to make them you know lovable and enjoyable and, and relatable too. Yeah, and also it definitely helps you connect uh, connection to the character. I'd also mention that um, again, as on the whole topic of grittier, darker, that something that is uh, almost like a lot of like Stephen King sort of work horror. That it's almost as if the bad person is like uh, the reincarnation of evil or indescribable evil. I wouldn't call that grimdark because your antagonist is essentially something that is super, is abnormal. It's supernatural. It has no empathy. It's a one dimensional, like sort of like orcs of things. So as I said, a lot of people confuse, uh, darker and edgy and grittier as opposed to, um, uh, grimdark. It's a complete opposite. It's it's making the antagonist human. It's actually making the bad guy, um, is molding him into the human shape. He's not some sort of omnipresent sort of evil or the devil reincarnated. It's a yeah. It's, that's why I'd say a lot of horror would not really be be considered grimdark, but a lot of science fiction would be. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. I mm. mean, one of my favorite antagonists at the moment is um, Andros Guile out of uh, um, uh, Brent Weeks's current works, and they. I think that the way that. Uh, Weeks just gives you these small little insights into him to show that he's not just this kind of, um, uh, I guess you'd almost call him a spider, the way that he weaves his webs of deception and whatnot. But, you know, he's actually, he's deep down, he's, he's still a father, he's still a husband, and, you know, he still wants the, the best for his family. You know? And I, I think that um, without providing any spoilers, um, I would say that he's probably one of the better antagonists going around mm. at the moment. Yeah. So in regards to the magazine, what exactly are you looking for and what's your ultimate goal with the magazine? Um, well, look, I'll, I'll start off with the goal. Um, the, the goal from a business perspective is obviously to be the, the premium design for this, for the Grimsark genre. Um, we want to be trusted by our contributors to do the right thing by them uh, financially um, and getting their work out there and in front of readers. Um, and we also want our customers to be able to trust us to provide them with quality work. Um, 
what are we looking for from our uh, from people that submit to us? Well, first and foremost, we're always after great stories. Um, we want those three things, as I defined earlier, about grim and dark. So we want the grim story, the dark world, and we want the morally um, ambiguous protagonist and preferably antagonist as well. Um, you know, I, I want what most editors want. I want depth. I want twists. I want turns. Um, you know, I want to laugh here and there to um, yeah, yeah. shine a bit of light into the grim dark. Um, but... But overall, like, of course, I want great writing. So, you know, short stories, I think, are an art. They're, they're difficult to write. Um, you know, things like purple prose and, and whatnot are absolutely useless in this sort of stuff. You know, it's mm. going to be tight, sharp, and, and Every short. Every word filed and, you know, off. From our submission guidelines, you know, we basically, from a budgeting perspective, we can only really go for um, unsolicited works of about 4,000 words max. So, you know, we're, we're just looking for cracking stories told in a short manner and we just want people to you know to get really good small tastes of grimdark from from as many new names and as many um of the more established ones as we can possibly buy yeah it's just like have new voices on the scene because like we all everyone's reading joe abercrombie mark lawrence and george r, r. martin but we mm-hmm. wanted to see the new voices on the scene see who who can offer what's their perspective what's their take on grimdark just uh put their voice in there, throw it out to the world, see what their reaction is, and just get their work in the magazine. The more voices, the new, the more fresh of the content, the better. Yeah, definitely. And I'll tell you what, there are uh, some amazing, amazing authors that are putting in some brilliant mm. work. Um, some of the stuff I've seen has just been fantastic. It's, you know, the things that actually make it into the magazine are, are quite, unfortunately, a, a small percentage of the works mm. that I wish I could publish that we receive because there's just some amazing stuff coming through. Maybe in the future, maybe in the future when you uh, maybe get more finances. This is why you should buy the magazine. All right, so tell us. <laughs> that was that wasn't very subtle, was it? Um, no, mate. That was about as subtle as a brick through a window. Okay. So but tell I us. It. Thanks, mate. Yeah, no worries at all. So what can we expect from the next issue? Um, the next issue, we don't have everything locked in, but our tentative lineup is so far we've got four short stories, uh, including mm. the second and final piece of R. Scott Backer's The Knife of Many Hands. Um, we've got interviews with uh, Backer and also Luke Skull. Um, we've also got excerpts from Luke Skull's uh, Sword in the North and also um, some science fiction from uh, Mark, sorry, Mike Brooks, whose uh, new book, Dark Run, comes out in June, I think. So we've got a, we've got a chunk of that you know, a couple of months before it actually comes out. Um, we've also got a review of Sword in the North and also um, Dirge from Tim, Tim Muckwitz. And then finally, uh, the guys from the team, uh, Rob and Mike, have put together an article on Grimdark and Sci-Fi. Right, fantastic. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Grimdark Magazine is available at the website below. I'll put a link on it. It's currently open for submissions and paying seven Australian cents a word. Uh, Adrian Collins, thank you very, very much for joining us here at Starship Sofa. And we'll also be hosting a story from Grimdark Magazine, uh, T.I. Napper's uh, Story of the Line, which we'll be hosting in a couple of weeks. I hope you very much enjoy that as well. Adrian, thank you very much for joining us here. Uh, thanks very much. I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, come on and speak to your listeners. Cheers. All right, Norris. Thank you. Very good.
We've got a link on for Grim Dog Magazine. Pop over there and just say hello, say hello to Adrian. Do you know what I mean? It's lovely that kind of. Well, I love kind of new kind of ideas in this kind of genre. So do pop over there. And big thank you to Jeremy as well, getting that sorted. So the main fiction is Neighbours by Megan Lindholm. Like I say, Robin Hobb. Megan Lindholm was born in Oakland, California in 1952 and spent the first 10 years of her life in California. She grew up in a house full of books, rich with lovely illustrations and fairy tale volumes. In 1970, she married and moved with her husband, Fred, to Kodiak, Alaska. They lived in a very small village called Chinook near Missile Tracking Site. In 1982, she sold her first fantasy novel, The Harpy's Flight. In 1995, her career as a novelist ended as she began to write epic fantasy under the pseudonym Robin Hobb. And this is, I guess this is where we all know her. Now, this story was originally published in Dangerous Women, which was edited by George R. Martin and Gardner Doswas. So this story is narrated by Peter Nixon. Peter is a security engineer for Intel Security, a husband, father, and does writing and editing and narrating on the side. He edited, produced, and narrated the short story anthology and podcast Green Eggs and Horror, which is a horror anthology inspired by the works of Dr. Zeus. The audio version of Green Eggs and Horror is available for free on greeneggsandhorror.com. Big thank you, Peter. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Neighbours by Megan Lindholm Linda Mason was loose again. It was three in the morning and sleep had fled. Sarah had wandered to the kitchen in her robe, put on the kettle and rummaged the cupboards until she found a box of Celestial Seasonings Tension Tamer tea bags. She had set out a teacup on a saucer and put the tea bag in her tea-for-one teapot when she heard someone outside in the dark shouting her name. Sarah! Sarah Wilkins! You'd better hurry! It's time to go! Her heart jumped high in her chest and hung there, pounding. Sarah didn't recognize the shrill voice, but the triumphantly defiant tone was alarming. She didn't want to look out the window. For a moment, she was eight years old again. Don't look under the bed. Don't open the closet at night. As long as you don't look, there might be nothing there. Schrodinger's boogeyman. She reminded herself that she was much closer to 68 than 8 and drew back the curtain. Low billows of fog cloaked the street, a precursor to fall in the Pacific Northwest. Her eyes adjusted, and she saw crazy old Linda standing in the street outside the iron fence that surrounded Sarah's backyard. She wore pink sweats and flappy bedroom slippers. She had an aluminum baseball bat in her hands and a Hello Kitty backpack on her shoulders. The latter two items, Sarah was fairly certain, actually belonged to Linda's granddaughter. Linda's son and his wife lived with the old woman. Sarah pitied the daughter-in-law, shoved into the role of caretaker for Robbie's oddball mother. Alzheimer's was what most people said about Linda, but just plain nuts seemed as apt. Sarah had known Linda for 22 years. They had carpooled their sons to YMCA soccer games. They'd talked over coffee, exchanged homemade jam and two mini zucchini, fed each other's pets during vacation getaways, greeted each other in Safeway, and gossiped about the other neighbors. Not best friends, but neighborhood mom friends, in a 50s sort of way. Linda was one of the few older residents still in the neighborhood. The other parents she had known were long gone, had moved into condos or migrated as snowbirds, 
or been packed off by their kids to senior homes. The houses would empty, and the next flock of young families would move in. Other than Linda, of her old friends, only Maureen and her husband, Hugh, still lived on the other end of the block, but they spent most days in Seattle for Hugh's treatments. Sarah, you'd better hurry, Linda shouted again. Two houses down, a bedroom light came on. The kettle began to whistle. Sarah snatched it off the burner, seized her coat off the hook, and opened the back door. The darn porch light didn't work. But it was too much trouble to get a step stool and a light bulb and fix it. She edged down the steps carefully and headed to the fence, hoping that Sarge hadn't done his business where she would step in it. Linda, are you all right? What's going on? She tried to speak to her as her old friend, but the truth was Linda scared her now. Sometimes she was Linda, but abruptly she might say something wild and strange or mean. She even did stranger things. A few days ago, in the early morning, she had escaped into her front yard, picked all the ripe apples off her neighbor's tree, and thrown them into the street. Better than letting them fall and rot like last year, she had shouted when they caught her at it. You'll just waste them. Feed the future, I say. Give them to the ones who appreciate them. When Robbie's wife had seized her by the arm and tried to drag her back into her house, Linda had slapped her. Linda's little granddaughter and her playmate had seen the whole thing. The child had started crying, but Sarah hadn't known if it was from distress, fear, or simple humiliation. For half the neighborhood had turned out for the drama, including the neighbor who owned the apple tree. That woman was furious, and telling anyone who would listen that it was time to put that crazy old woman in a home. She'd lived in the neighborhood a couple of years, but Sarah didn't even know her name. I am in my home. Linda had shrieked back at her. Why are you living in Marilyn's home? And what gives you more right to the apples off her tree than me? I helped her plant that damn thing. Don't you think we'd put her in a home if we could afford one? Do you think I like living like this? Robbie's wife had shouted at the neighbor. Then she had burst into tears and finally managed to tow Linda back inside. And now Linda was out in the foggy night, staring at Sarah with round, wild eyes. The wind was blowing through her white hair and leaves rustled past her on the pavement. She wore a pink running suit and her bedroom slippers. She had something on her head, something fastened to a wool cap. She advanced on the fence and tapped the baseball bat on top of it, making it ring. Don't dent my fence, Sarah had cried, and then, Stay right there, I'm going to get help. You need help, not me, Linda had shouted. She laughed wildly and quoted, Little child, come out to play. The moon doth shine as bright as day. Except it doesn't, so that's what I take with me. Moonlight. Linda, it's cold out here. Come inside and tell me there. The phone. She should be calling 911 right now. Alex had told her to get a cell phone, but she just couldn't budget one more payment a month. She couldn't even afford to replace her old cordless phone with the faulty ringer. We'll have a cup of tea and talk. Just like old times, when the kids were small. She remembered it clearly, suddenly. She and Maureen and Linda sitting up together, waiting for the kids to come home from a football game, talking and laughing. Then the kids grew up, and they'd gone separate ways. They hadn't had coffee together in years. No, Sarah, you come with me. Magic is better than crazy, and time is the only difference between magic and crazy. Stay in there. You're crazy. Come with me. You're magic. Watch. She did something, her hand fumbling at her breast. Then she lit up. Solar power, she shouted. That's my ticket to the future. By the many tiny LEDs, Sarah recognized what Linda was wearing. She draped herself in strings of Christmas lights. 
the little solar panels that had charged them were fastened to her hat. Linda, come inside and show me. I'm freezing out here. They were shouting. Why was the neighborhood staying dark? Someone should be getting annoyed by their loud conversation. Someone's dog should be barking. Time and tide wait for no man, Sarah. I'm off to seek my fortune. Last chance. Will you come with me? Inside the house, Sarah had to look up Linda's number on the phone book, and when she called it, no one answered. After ten rings, it went to recording. She hung up, took the phone to the window, and dialed again. No Linda out there now. The windows in her house were dark. What to do now? Go bang on the door? Maybe Robbie had already come outside and found his mom and taken her in. Call the police? She went back into the yard, carrying the receiver in one hand. Linda? She called into the foggy darkness. Linda, where are you? No one answered. The fog had thickened, and the neighborhood was dark now. Even the street light on the corner, the hateful one that shone into her bedroom window, had chosen this moment to be dark. She dialed Linda's number again, listened to a ring. Back in the house, Sarah phoned her own son. She heard Alex's sleepy, What? on the seventh ring. She poured out her story. He wasn't impressed. Oh, Mom, it's not our business. Go back to bed. I bet she went right back home and she's probably asleep right now. Like I wish I was. But what if she's wandered off into the night? You know she's not in her right mind. She's not the only one, Alex muttered and then said, Look, Mom, it's four in the morning. Go back to bed. I'll drop by on my way to work and we'll knock on their door together. I'm sure she's okay. Go back to bed. So she had to toss and turn and worry. She woke up at seven to his key in the lock. Good heavens, she'd made him detour from his Seattle commute to come by, and she wasn't even up and ready to go knock on Linda's door. Be right down, she shouted down the stairs and began pulling on clothes. It took her longer than it should have, especially tying her shoes. Floor just keeps getting farther and farther away every day, she muttered. It was her old joke with Russ, but Russ wasn't around any longer to agree with her. Sarge was sleeping across her bedroom door. She nudged the beagle, and he trailed after her. She opened the kitchen door to a wave of heat. What are you doing? she demanded. Alex had the back door open and was fanning it back and forth. What's that smell? He glared at her. The stove was on when I came in. You're damn lucky you didn't burn the house down. Why didn't your smoke detector go off? Batteries must be dead, she lied. She had gotten tired of them going off for every bagel the old toaster scorched and had loosened the battery in the kitchen unit. I must have left the burner on last night when Linda was outside, so it wasn't on all night, only three or four hours. The stovetop still simmered with heat, and the white ceramic around the abused burner was a creamy brown now. She started to touch it and then drew her hand back. A little scouring powder should clean that up. No harm done, thank goodness. No harm done? Only three or four hours? Shit, Mom, do you not understand how lucky you were? To her dismay, he unfolded her kitchen step stool and climbed up to the smoke detector. He tugged the cover open, and the battery fell to the floor. Well, there's the problem, she observed. It must have come loose in there. He eyed her. He eyed her. Must have, he said in a tight voice. Before she could stoop down, he hopped off the stool, scooped it up, and snapped it back into place. He closed the cover. Want some coffee? she asked as she turned on the pot. She'd preset the coffee pot just as she had for the last twenty years so she wouldn't have to fill it up every morning. Just push the button and then sit at the table and read the paper in her pajamas until the first cup was ready when Russ would come down. 
or not, as now is the case. No, thanks. I need to get on my way. Mom, you've got to be more careful. I am careful. It wouldn't have happened if the night hadn't been so weird. And you wouldn't have forgotten your card at the ATM last week, except that fire truck went by so you didn't hear the machine beeping at you as you walked away. But what about locking your keys in the car and leaving the sprinkler running all night? That was months ago. That's my point. This forgetfulness started months ago. It's only getting worse and more expensive. We had the water bill and the locksmith. Luckily, the ATM sucked your card back in and the bank called you. You didn't even realize it was gone. And now we're going to have a little spike in the power bill this month. You need to go to the doctor and get checked out. Maybe there's a pill for it. I'll handle it, she said. Now her voice was getting tight. She hated being lectured like this. You'd better get on the road before the traffic builds up. You want some coffee in your commuter mug? He stared at her for a time, wanting to continue the argument, to reach some sort of imaginary resolution. Luckily, Alex didn't have the time. Yeah, I'll get my mug. Looks like everything's okay at the Masons. There goes Robbie to work. I don't think he'd be doing that if his mom were missing. There was nothing to reply that wouldn't make her sound even more like a crackpot. When he came back in with his mug, she reached for the coffee pot and saw it was full of pale brown water. She'd forgotten to put the grounds in the filter. She didn't miss a beat as she took out the instant coffee. I've stopped making a full pot just for myself, she said as she spooned powdered coffee into his commuter mug and poured the hot water over it. He took it with a sigh. Once he was gone, she fixed the coffee properly and sat down with her paper. It was eleven o'clock before the police arrived, and one in the afternoon before an officer tapped on her door. She felt terrible as he carefully jotted down her account of what she had seen at 4 a.m. "'And you didn't call the police?' the young man asked her. His brown eyes full of sorrow for her stupidity. "'I called her house twice, and then called my son. But I didn't see her outside, so I thought she'd gone home.' He folded his notebook with a sigh and tucked it into his pocket. "'Well, she didn't,' he said heavily. "'Poor old lady, out there in her slippers and Christmas lights.' Well, I doubt she went far. We'll find her. She was wearing a hot pink workout suit and bedroom slippers. She rummaged through her recall. And she had a baseball hat and a Hello Kitty backpack like she was going somewhere. He took out his notebook, sighed again, and added the details. I wish you had called, he said as he pocketed it again. So do I. But my son said she had probably gone home, and at my age it's pretty easy to doubt your own judgment on things. I imagine so. Good afternoon, ma'am. It was Thursday. She went to see Richard in the nursing home. She took, as she always did, one of the photo albums from when they were children. She parked in the parking lot, crossed the street to the coffee shop, and bought a large vanilla latte. She carried it into the permanent pea smell of Caring Manor, through the parlor, with its floral sofa and dusty plastic flower arrangements, and went down the hall, past the inhabited wheelchairs parked along the walls, the hunched backs and wrinkly necks of the residents reminded her of turtles peering out of their shells. A few of the patients nodded at her as she passed, but most simply stared. Blue eyes faded to pale linen, brown eyes bleeding pigment onto their whites, eyes with no one behind them anymore. There were familiar faces, residents who had been there at least as long as the three years that Richard had been there. She remembered their names, but they no longer did. They slumped in their chairs, waiting for nothing. Their wheels a mockery to people who had no place to go. There was a new nurse at the desk. Again. 
At first, Sarah had tried to greet every nurse and aide by name each time she visited Richard. It had proven a hopeless task. The nurses changed too often, and the lower echelon of aides who actually tended the residents changed even more frequently, as did the languages they spoke. Some of them were nice, chatting to Richard as they cleared away his lunch tray or changed his bedding. But others reminded her of prison inmates, their eyes empty and resentful of their duties and the residents. She often brought them small gifts, jars of jam, squash from her garden, fresh tomatoes and peppers. She hoped those small bribes spoke, even though they didn't understand all her words as she thanked them for taking such good care of her brother. Sometimes, when she was wakeful in the night, she prayed that they would be patient and kind, or at least not vindictive. Be kind when wiping feces from his legs. Be kind when holding him up for his shower. Be kind when doing a task you hate for a wage that doesn't support you. Can anyone be that kind, she wondered. Richard wasn't there that Thursday. She sat with the man who lived in his body, showing him pictures of when they went camping, of their first days of school, and of their parents. He nodded and smiled and said they were lovely photos. That was the worst. That even in his confusion, his gentle courtesy remained. She stayed the one hour she always stayed with him, no matter how heart-wrenching it was. When no one was looking, she gave him sips of her coffee. Richard wasn't allowed liquids anymore. Everything he ate was pureed, and all his drinks, even his water, were thickened to a slime, so that he wouldn't aspirate them. That was one of the problems with Alzheimer's. The swallowing muscles at the back of the throat weakened, or people just forgot how to use them. So doctor's orders for Richard were that he could no longer have coffee. She defied that. He'd lost his books, and his pipe smoking, and walking by himself. His coffee was his last small pleasure in life, and she clung to it on his behalf. Every week, she brought him a cup and helped him surreptitiously to drink it while it was still hot. He loved it. The coffee always won her a smile from the creature who had been her big, strong brother. Cup empty, she went home. Linda's disappearance was in the Tacoma News Tribune the next day. Sarah read the article. They had used an older photo, a calm and competent woman in a power suit. She wondered if it was because they had no snapshots of a wild-haired old woman. But then, no one had pictures of the grin she had worn when she'd turned her garden hose on the ten-year-old Thompson twins for squirting her cat with super soakers. It could not capture her smothered giggles when she had called Sarah at two in the morning, and they'd both crept out to let the air out of all the tires in the cars parked outside Marty Sobin's place, when her teenager had the drunken party while Marty was out of town. Now they can't drive drunk, Linda had whispered with satisfaction. Linda from the old days... Sarah remembered how she had stood in the street, flat-footed, her teeth gritted, and forced Marsha Bates to screech to a halt to avoid hitting her with her dad's jeep. You're driving too fast for this neighborhood. Next time, I tell your parents and the cops. That Linda had hosted the neighborhood 4th of July barbecues, and her house had been the one where the teenagers voluntarily gathered. Her Christmas lights were always first up and last down, and her Halloween jack-o'-lanterns were the largest on the street. That Linda had known how to start up a generator for the outdoor lights at the soccer picnic. After the big ice storm twelve years ago, she had taken her chainsaw and cut up the tree that had fallen across the street when the city said no one could come for three days. Russ had opened the window and shouted, Heads up, people! Crazy Norwegian lady with a chainsaw! And they had all laughed proudly. So proud that they could take care of themselves. 
But that Linda and the cranky old woman she had become were both gone now. Her family put up posters. The police brought in a bloodhound. Robbie came by to visit and ask what she had seen that night. It was hard to meet his eyes and explain why she hadn't called the police. I called your house. Twice. I let the phone ring twenty times. We turned the ringer off at night, he said dully. He'd been a heavy boy when he played goalie for the soccer team, and now he was just plain fat. A fat, tired man with a problem parent who had turned into a missing parent. It had to be something of a relief, Sarah thought, and then bit her lip to keep from saying it aloud. As the days went by, the nights got cooler and rainier. There were no reported sightings. She couldn't have gotten far on foot. Could she? Had someone picked her up? What would someone want with a demented old woman with a baseball bat? Was she dead in the blackberries in some overgrown lot? Hitchhiking down Highway 99? Hungry and cold somewhere? Now, when Sarah awoke at 2 or 3 or 4.15, guilt would keep her awake until true morning. It was horrid to be awake before the paper was delivered and before it was time to brew coffee. She sat at her table and stared at the harvest moon. Boys and girls come out to play, she whispered to herself. Her strange hours bothered Sarge. The pudgy beagle would sit beside her chair and watch her with his mournful hound eyes. He missed Russ. He'd been Russ's dog. And since Russ had died, his dog had just become morose. She felt like he was just waiting to die now. Well, wasn't she, too? No, of course not. She had her life, her schedule. She had her morning paper and her garden to tend, and her grocery shopping and her TV shows at night. She had Alex and Sandy. Even if Sandy lived on the other side of the mountains, she had her house, her yard, and her dog, and other important things. At 4.15, on a dark September morning, it was hard to remember what those important things were. Steady, pattering rain had given way to silence and rising mist. She was working the Sudoku in yesterday's paper, a stupid sort of puzzle, all logic and no cleverness, when Sarge turned to stare silently at the back door. She turned off the light in the kitchen and peered out the back door window. The street was so dark, not a house light showing anywhere. She clicked the switch on her porch light. The bulb was still burned out. Someone out there. She heard voices. She cupped her hands around her face and pressed closer to the glass. Still couldn't see. She opened a back door softly and stepped quietly out. Five young men, three abreast, and two following. She didn't recognize any of them, but they didn't look like they came from her neighborhood. The teenagers hunched along in heavy coats and unlaced work boots, moving like a pack of dogs, their eyes roving from side to side. They carried sacks. The leader pointed at an old pickup truck parked across the street. They moved toward it, looked into the bed of it, and tried the locked doors. One peered through the side window and said something. Another one picked up a fallen tree branch and bashed it against the windshield. The rotted limb gave way in chunks and fell in the littered street. The others laughed at him and moved on, but the young vandal was stubborn. As he clambered into the bed of the truck to try to kick out the back window, Hello Kitty looked back at her. Her heart leapt into her chest. A coincidence, she told herself. He was just a macho youngster wearing a Hello Kitty backpack to be ironic. It meant nothing. No more than that. Yes, it did. She was grateful that her porch light was out and her kitchen dark. She eased quietly inside pushed the door almost closed, picked up her phone and dialed 911, wincing at the beeps. Would he hear them? 
It rang three times before the operator picked up. Police or fire? The woman demanded. Police. Some men are trying to break into a truck parked in front of my house. And one is wearing a pink backpack like my friend was wearing the night. Slow down, ma'am. Name and address. She rattled them off. Can you describe the men? It's dark and my porch light is out. I'm alone here. I don't want them to know I'm watching them and making this call. How many men? Can you give a general description? Are the police coming? She demanded, suddenly angry at all the useless questions. Yes, I've dispatched someone. Now, please tell me as much as you can about the men. Piss on it. She went to the door and looked out. He was gone. She looked up and down the street, but the night was hazy with fog. They're gone. Are you the owner of the vehicle they were attempting to break into? No, but the important thing is that one of them was wearing a pink backpack, just like the one my friend was wearing when she disappeared. I see. Sarah was sure the dispatcher didn't see at all. Ma'am, this is not an immediate emergency. We will still send an officer, but he may not arrive immediately. Fine. She hung up. Stupid. She went to the door and looked out again. Upstairs, in the dresser drawer, under Russ's work shirts, there was a pistol, a little black twenty-two that she hadn't shot in years. Instead, she took her long, heavy flashlight from the bottom drawer and stepped out into the backyard. Sarge followed her. She walked quietly to the fence, snapped on the flashlight, and shone it on the old truck. The beam barely reached it. Up the street and down, baffled by the fog, the light showed her nothing. She went back in the house with Sarge, locked the door, but left the kitchen light on and went back to bed. She didn't sleep. The officer didn't come by until 10.30. She understood. Tacoma was a violent little town. They had to roll first on the calls where people were actually in danger. He came, he took her report, and gave her an incident number. The pickup truck was gone. No, she didn't know who it belonged to. Five young men, mid to late teens, dressed in rough clothes, and the one with the pink backpack. She refused to guess their heights or their races. It had been dark. But you saw the backpack clearly? She had, and she was certain it was identical to the one that Linda had been carrying. The officer nodded and noted it down. He leaned on her kitchen table to look out the window. He frowned. Ma'am, you said he hit the window with a fallen branch and it broke into pieces? That's right, but I don't think the window broke. Ma'am, there are no tree branches out there, or pieces in the street. He looked at her pityingly. Is it possible you dreamed this because you were worried about your friend? She wanted to spit at him. There's the flashlight I used, still on the counter where I left it. His eyebrows collided. But you said it was dark and you couldn't see anything. I went out with the flashlight after I hung up with 911 to see if I could see where they had gone. I see. Well, thank you for calling us on this. After he left, she went outside herself. She crossed the street to where the pickup had been parked. No pieces of branch on the ground, not even a handful of leaves in the gutter. Her new neighbor had a lawn fetish. It was as groomed as astroturf on a playfield, the gutters as clean as if vacuumed. She scowled to herself. Last night there had been dry leaves whispering as the wind blew, and there had definitely been a large, heavy, rotten branch in the street. But the young apple trees in his planting strip were scarcely bigger than a rake handle. Too small to have grown such a branch, let alone dropped one. Sarah went back in her house. She wept for a time then made a cup of tea and felt relieved that she hadn't called Alex about it. 
she cataloged the work she could do. Laundry, deadheading the roses, taking in the last of the green tomatoes and making chutney of them. She went upstairs and took a nap. After three weeks, the neighborhood quit gossiping about Linda. Her face still smiled from a missing poster at Safeway next to the pharmacy counter. Sarah ran into Marine there, picking up pills for Hugh, and they got Starbucks and wondered what had become of Linda. They talked about the old days, soccer games and tux rentals for proms and the time Linda had hotwired Hugh's truck when no one could find the keys and Alex had needed stitches right away. They laughed a lot and wept a little and worked their way back to the present. Marine shared her news. Hugh was holding his own, and Marine said it as if being able to sit up in bed was all he really wanted to do. Marine invited her to come pick the apples off their backyard tree. I don't have time to do anything with them, and there are more than we can eat. I hate to see them just fall out and rot. It had felt good to have coffee and a conversation, and it made Sarah realize how long it had been since she had socialized. She thought about it the next morning as she sorted the mail on her table. A power bill, a brochure on long-term care insurance, an AARP paper, and two brochures from retirement homes. She set the bill to one side and stacked the rest to recycle with the morning paper. She found a basket and was just leaving to raid Maureen's apple tree when Alex came in. He sat down at her table, and she microwaved the leftover morning coffee for them. I had come into Tacoma for a seminar, so I thought I'd drop by. And I wanted to remind you that the second half of property taxes is due at the end of this month. You pay it yet? No, but it's on my desk. That, at least, was true. It was on her desk. Somewhere. She saw him eyeing the retirement home brochures. Junk mail, she told him. Ever since your dad signed us up for AARP, we get those things. Do you? He looked abashed. I thought it was because I asked them to send them. I thought maybe you'd look at them and then we could talk. About what? Recycling? Her joke came out harder-edged than she had intended. Alex got his stubborn look. He would never eat broccoli. Never. And he was going to have this conversation with her no matter what. She put a spoonful of sugar in her coffee and stirred it, resigned to an unpleasant half hour. Mom, we have to face facts. He folded his hands on the edge of the table. Taxes are coming due. The second half of them is 700 bucks. House insurance comes due in November, and oil prices are going up. With winter heating bills ahead of us, and this place isn't exactly energy efficient, he spoke as if she were a bit stupid as well as old. I'll put on a sweater and move the little heater from room to room, like I did last year. Zonal heating. Most efficient way to heat a home. She sipped her coffee. He opened his hands on the table. That's fine. Until we start to get mold in the house from damp in the unheated basement. Mom, this is a three-bedroom, two-bath house, and you live in maybe four rooms of it. The only bathtub is upstairs, and the laundry is in the basement. That's a lot of stairs for you each day. The electrical box should have been replaced years ago. The refrigerator needs a new seal. The living room carpeting is fraying where it meets the tile. All things she knew. She tried to make light of it. And the bulb is burned out in the back porch light. Don't forget that. He narrowed his eyes at her. When the beech tree dumps its leaves, we'll need to rake them off the lawn and get them out of the rain gutters. And next year, the house is going to need paint. She folded her lips. True. All true. I'll cross those bridges as I come to them, she said, instead of telling him to mind his own damn business. 
He leaned his elbows on the table and put his forehead in his hands. He didn't look up at her as he said, Mom, that just means you'll call me when you can't get the leaves into the lawn recycling bin, or when the gutters are overflowing down the side of the house. You can't maintain this place by yourself. I want to help you, but it always seems that you call me when I'm prepping a presentation or raking my own leaves. She stared at Alex, stricken. I don't come by if you're that busy. No one dies from clogged gutters or leaves on the lawn. She felt ashamed, then angry. How dare he make himself a martyr to her needs? How dare he behave as if she were a burden? She'd asked if he had time to help her, not demanded that he come. You're my mom, he said, as if that created some irrevocable duty that no one could erase. What will people think if I let the house start falling apart around you? Besides, your house is your major asset. It has to be maintained. Or, if we can't maintain it, we need to liquidate it and get you into something you can manage. A senior apartment or assisted living. Alex, I'll have you know that this is my home, not my major... Alex held up a commanding hand. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot... We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom, let me finish. I don't have a lot of time today, so let me just say this. I'm not talking about a nursing home. I know you hate visiting Uncle Richard. I'm talking about a place of your own with a lot of amenities, without the work of owning a home. This one, here, he put his finger on a brochure, coaxed it out of the junk mail pile. It's in Olympia, on the water. They have their own little dock and boats that residents can use. You can make friends and go fishing. She put a stiff smile on her face and tried to make a joke of it. I can't rake leaves, but you think I can row a boat? You don't have to go fishing. She had annoyed him popping his dream of his mom in a happy little waterfront terrarium. I'm just saying that you could. That this place has all sorts of amenities. A pool, an exercise studio, daily shuttles to the grocery store. You could enjoy life again. He was so earnest. The bathroom has this safety feature. If you fall, you pull a cord and it connects you 24-7 to help. 
There's a dining hall, so if you don't feel like cooking that day, you don't have to. There's an activity center with a movie room. They schedule game nights and barbecues and... Sounds like summer camp for old farts, she interrupted him. He was wordless for a moment. I just want you to know the possibilities, he said stiffly. You don't like this. Fine. There are other places that are just apartments suited to older people. All the rooms on one level, grab bars in the bathrooms, halls wide enough for walkers. I just thought you might like something nicer. I have something nicer. My own home. And I couldn't afford those places. If you sold this house in this market? Ha! Or rented it out then, she glared at him. It would work. A rental agency would manage it for a percentage. Lots of people do it. Look, I don't have time to argue today. Hell, I don't have time to argue any day. And that's really what we are discussing. I just don't have time to be running over here every day. I love you. But you have to make it possible for me to take care of you and still have a life of my own. I've got a wife and kids. They need my time just as much as you do. I can't work a job and take care of two households. I just can't. He was angry now, and that showed how close he was to breaking. She looked at the floor. Sarge was under the table. He lifted sad brown eyes to her. And Sarge? she asked quietly. He sighed. Mom, he's getting old. You should think about what's best for him. That afternoon, she got out the step stool and changed the bulb on the porch light. She dragged the aluminum ladder out of the garage, set it up, pulled the hose out, climbed the damn thing, and hosed out the gutters along the front of the garage. She raked the wet leaves and debris into a pile on a tarp and then wrestled it over to the edge of her vegetable plot and dumped them. Compost. Easier than fighting with a leaf bin. She woke up at ten the next morning, instead of six, aching all over, to an overcast day. Sarge's whining woke her. He had to go. Getting out of bed was a cautious process. She put on her wrapper and leaned on the handrail going down the stairs. She let Sarge into the foggy backyard, found the Advil, and pushed the button on the coffee maker. I'm going to do it until I can't do it anymore, she said savagely. I'm not leaving my house. The newspaper was on the front doormat. As she straightened up, she looked at her neighborhood and was jolted by the change. When she and Russ had moved in, it had been an upwardly mobile neighborhood, where lawns stayed green and mowed all summer, houses were repainted with clockwork regularity, and flower beds were meticulously tended. Now her eyes snagged on a sagging gutter in the corner of the old McPherson house, and down the way, the weeping willow that had been Alice Carter's pride had a broken branch that dangled down, covered in dead leaves. Her lawn was dead, too, and the paint was peeling on the sunny side of the house. When had it all become so run down? Her breath came faster. This was not how she recalled her street. Was this what Alex was talking about? Had her, forget had her forgetfulness become so encompassing? She clutched the newspaper to her breast and retreated into the house. Sarge was scratching at the back door. She opened it for the beagle and then stood staring out past her fence. The pickup truck was there again red and rusting, one tire flat, algae on the windows. The pieces of broken tree branch still littered the street, and the wind had heaped fallen leaves against them. Slowly, her heart hammering, she lifted her eyes to the gnarled apple trees that had replaced her memory of broomstick saplings. This cannot be, she said to the dog. She lurched stiffly down the steps, Sarge trailing at her heels. She walked past her roses to the fence, 
peering through the tattered fog. Nothing changed. The more she studied her familiar neighborhood, the more foreign it became. Broken windows, chimneys missing bricks, dead lawns, a collapsed carport. A rhythmic noise turned her head. The man came striding down the street, boots slapping through wet leaves, the pink pack high on his shoulders. He carried the aluminum baseball bat across the front of his body, right hand gripping it, left hand cradling the barrel. Sarge growled low in his throat. Sarah couldn't make a sound. He didn't even glance at them. When he reached the truck, he set his feet, measured the distance, and then hit the driver's side window. The glass held. He hit it again, and then again until it was a spider-webbed, crinkling curtain of safety glass. Then he reversed the bat and rammed the glass out of his way. He reached in, unlocked the door, and jerked it open. "'Where's Linda? What did you do to her?' Surely it was someone else who shouted the brave words. The man froze in the act of rummaging inside the cab. He straightened and spun around, the bat ready. Sarah's knees weakened and she grabbed the top rail of her fence to keep from sagging. The man who glared at her was in his late teens. The unlaced work boots looked too big for him, as did the bulky canvas jacket he wore. His hair was unkempt and his spotty beard an accident. He scanned the street in all directions. His eyes swept right past her and her growling dog without a pause as he looked for witnesses. She saw his chest rise and fall. His muscles were bunched in readiness. She stared at him, waiting for the confrontation. Should have grabbed the phone. Should have dialed 911 from inside the house. Stupid old woman, they'll find me dead in the yard and never know what happened. But he didn't advance. His shoulders slowly lowered. She remained standing where she was, but he didn't even look at her. Not worth his attention. He turned back to the cab of the truck and leaned in. Sarge, come here, boy. Sarge, come, boy, come. She moved quietly away from the fence. The dog remained where he was, tail up, legs stiff, intent on the intruder in his street. The sun must have wandered behind a thicker bank of clouds. The day grayed and the fog thickened until she could scarcely see the fence. Sarge, she called more urgently. In response to the worry in her voice, his growl deepened. In the street, the thief stepped back from the truck, a canvas tool tote in his hands. He rummaged in it, and a wrench fell. It rang metallic on the pavement, and Sarge suddenly bayed. On his back, short, stiff hair stood up in a bristle. Out in the street, the man spun and stared directly at the dog. He knit his brows, leaning forward and peering. The fat beagle bayed again, and as the man lifted his bat, Sarge sprang forward, snarling. The fence didn't stop him. Sarah stared as Sarge vanished into the rolling fog and then reappeared in the street, outside her fence, baying. The man stooped, picked up a chunk of the rotten branch and threw it at Sarge. She didn't think it hit him, but the beagle yelped and dodged. Leave my dog alone, she shouted at him. I've called the cops. They're on the way. He kept his eyes on the dog. Sarge bayed again, noisily proclaiming his territory. The thief snatched a wrench from the tool pouch and threw it. This time, she heard a meaty thunk as it hit her dog. And Sarge's yipping as he fled was that of an injured dog. Sarge! Sarge, come back! You bastard! You bastard, leave my dog alone! For the man was pursuing him, bat held ready. Sarah ran into the house, grabbed her phone, dialed it, ran outside again. Ringing, ringing, Sarge! She shouted, fumbled the catch on the gate and ran out into an empty street. Empty. No truck, no fallen branches or dead leaves. 
A mist under the green belt trees at the end of the street vanished as the sun broke through the overcast. She stood in a tidy, urban neighborhood of mowed lawns and swept sidewalks. No shattered windshield, no shabby thief. Hastily, she pushed the off button on her phone. No beagle. Sarge! She called, her voice breaking on his name. But he was gone. Just as gone as everything else she had glimpsed. The phone in her hand rang. Her voice shook as she assured 911 that everything was all right, that she had dropped the phone and accidentally pushed buttons as she picked it up. No, no one needed to come by. She was fine. She sat at her kitchen table, stared at the street and cried for two hours. Cried for her mind that was slipping away. Cried for Sarge being gone. Cried for a life spinning out of her control. Cried for being alone in a foreign world. She took the assisted living brochures out of the recycling bin, read them, and wept over the Alzheimer's wing with alarms on the doors. Anything but this, God, she begged him, and then thought of the sleeping pills the doctor had offered when Russ had died. She'd never filled the prescription. She looked for it in her purse. It wasn't there. She went upstairs and opened the drawer, and looked in at the handgun. She remembered Russ showing her how the catch worked, and how she had loaded the magazine with ammunition. They'd gone plinking at tin cans in a gravel pit, years ago, but the gun was still there, and when she worked the catch, the magazine dropped into her hand. There was an amber plastic box of ammunition next to it, surprisingly heavy. Fifty rounds. She looked at it and thought of Russ and how gone he was. Then she put it back, got her basket, and went to pick Maureen's apples. She and Hugh weren't home. Probably up at the Seattle hospital. Sarah filled her basket with heavy apples and lugged it home, planning what she would make. Jars of applesauce? Jars of apple rings, spiced and reddened with Red Hot's candy? Empty jars waited, glass shoulder to shoulder, next to the enamel canner and the old pressure cooker. She stood in the kitchen, staring up at them, and then at the apples on the counter. Put them in jars for whom? Who could trust anything she canned? She should drag them all down and donate them. She shut the cupboard, done and over. Canning was as done and over as dancing, or embroidery, or sex. No use mooning over it. She washed and polished half a dozen apples, put them in a pretty basket with a late dahlia, and went to visit Richard. She left a basket at the desk with a thank-you note for the nurses and went in with the cup of coffee. She gave him sips of it and told him everything, about the fog and Linda disappearing and the man with her backpack. He watched her face and listened to the story she couldn't tell anyone else. A shadow of life came back into his face as he offered a brother's best advice. Shoot, the son of a bitch. He shook his head, coughed and added, Poor old dog, but at least he probably went fast, eh? Better than a slow death. He gestured around him with a bony, age-spotted hand. Better than this, Sal. Better than this. She stayed an extra hour with him that day, then rode the bus home and went directly to bed. When she woke up at 2 a.m., she swept the floor and cleaned the bathroom and made herself a lonely apple in the oven. The cinnamon, apple-brown sugar smell made her weep. She ate it with tears on her cheeks. That was the day she became completely unhooked from time. Without Sarge asking her to get up at 6 and feed him, what did it matter what time she got up, or when she cooked, or ate, or raked leaves? The newspaper would always wait for her, 
Safeway never closed, and she never knew which days would show her a pleasant fall afternoon in a quiet neighborhood, and which ones would reveal a foggy world of derelict houses and rusting cars. Why not shop for groceries at one in the morning, or read the day's news at eight o'clock at night while eating a microwave dinner? Time didn't matter anymore. That, she decided, was the secret of it. She wondered if it happened to all old people. Once they realized, time no longer applied to them. She began to deliberately go out into the yard on the foggy days, to stare by choice into that dismal other world. Three days after Sarge had vanished, she saw a ragged little girl shaking the lower branches of an overgrown apple tree, hoping that the last wormy apples would fall for her. Nothing fell, but she kept trying. Sarah went back into the house and brought out the basket of apples from Maureen's tree. She stood in her backyard and pitched them over the fence, one at a time. She threw them underhand, just as she had used to pitch softballs for her children. The first three simply vanished in the fog. Then, as the mist thickened, one thunked into the weedy brown lawn by the child. The girl jumped on the apple, believing she had shaken it down herself. Sarah lobbed half a dozen more fat red apples, sprayed and watered and ripe. With each succeeding apple, the child's delight grew. She sat down under the tree, hunched her legs to her chest for warmth, and hungrily ate apple after apple. Sarah bit into an apple herself and ate it while she watched. When she was finished, it became a game for Sarah to stand ready to lob an apple when the child shook the tree. When the girl couldn't eat anymore, she stuffed them into her ragged backpack. When all the apples had been thrown, Sarah went back into the house, made herself tea, and thought about it until the mist burned away and she saw the first apple she had tossed lying in the street. She laughed, brushed her hair, put on her shoes, and went shopping. For three days, the mist came, but no child appeared. Sarah wasn't discouraged. The next time the mist swept through, she was ready. She had bagged the pink socks in plastic, taped, taped securely shut, no telling how long they would lie there before the child came back. There were two sweatshirts, pink with sequins and warm woolly tights, and a sturdy blue backpack full of granola bars. One after another, she flung them over the fence and into the mist. She heard them land even though she couldn't see them. When the mist cleared and only one pair of socks remained in the street, she rejoiced. She hoped she would see the little girl come back and find her gifts. She didn't, but the next time the mist swirled, she could clearly see that the treasures were gone. She found them, she congratulated herself, and planned more surprises. Simple things. A bag of dried apricots, oatmeal cookies with chocolate chips in a sturdy plastic tub, over the fence and into the mist. Those she saw the girl find and the look on her face as she opened the box was priceless. The nights got colder, and snow threatened. Was it as cold in that other world? Where did the child sleep? Did she den in some bushes, or lair in one of the abandoned houses? Sarah found her knitting needles, and ferreted out a stash of yarn. She had forgotten these colors, heather purple and acorn cap brown and moss green. They wrapped her needles and slid through her stiff fingers with the memories of days when she could hike the autumn hillsides. She took her knitting with her in a bag when she visited Richard, and even if he didn't know her, he remembered how their mother would never watch television without her knitting. They laughed at that, and cried a bit, too. His cough was worse. She gave him sips of coffee to clear his throat, and when he asked in a boy's voice if he could keep the green wool hat, she left it with him. Sarah, packaged together, 
heathery woolen mittens, a matching hat, and a pair of pink rubber boots. On impulse, she added a picture dictionary. She put the things in Ziploc bags, and when the mist swirled in the winter winds, she grinned as she frisbeed them over the fence and into the fog. Early in November, she threw a sack of orange and black Halloween cream candies, pumpkins and cats and ears of corn, left over a very disappointing turnout of trick-or-treaters at her door. When she visited Richard, he was wearing his green hat in bed. She told him about the little girl, about the apples and the mittens. He laughed his old laugh, then coughed himself red in the face. The nurse came, and when she eyed his coffee suspiciously, Sarah smiled and drank the rest of it. "'You're a nice lady,' Richard told her as she was leaving. "'You remind me of my sister.' Several nights later, in the middle of the night, a storm woke her, and she came down the stairs to the kitchen. Outside, the wind blew past her chimney and brushed the tree branches against the roof. It would bring the last of the leaves down. She'd have to rake tomorrow. Through the wind, she heard a child's voice, perhaps the girl's. She opened her back door and stepped onto her porch. Overhead, the branches of the beach swayed and leaves rained in the street. A thick bank of mist rolled slowly past. She crossed her lawn and groped for the top of her fence. She strained her eyes and ears, trying to penetrate the fog and the darkness. She almost stayed too long. The fence faded from her grip. She stepped back as it melted into fog. The porch light seemed distant. Mist roiled between her and her steps. Behind her, she heard heavier footfalls in the street. Men, not a child. She moved through the fog as if she were breasting deep water. Her breath was sobbing in and out of her as she stumbled up the steps. The men's footfalls rang clear behind her. Reaching around the door into her house, she snapped off the porch light and stood frozen on the steps, peering through mist and dark. They had the girl. One held her firmly by the wrist. She pointed and spoke to them. She touched her hat and spoke again. The man gripping her wrist shook his head. The girl pointed again, insistently, at the apple tree across the street. The man advanced on it. Sarah watched them as they methodically searched the tree, the area under the tree, and then the planting strip and the yard across the street. One of them dragged open the sagging door and vanished into the house. He emerged a short time later, shaking his head. When they looked in her direction, she wondered what they saw. What was her house in their world in time? A deserted place with broken windows, like the house across the street? A burned-out hulk like the mason's home halfway down the block? What would happen if the fog engulfed her house? The man with Linda's backpack and baseball bat stared intently at her porch. A swirl of mist followed her as she retreated into her kitchen, not daring to shut her door lest it make a noise. Noise, she knew, could reach from her world to theirs. She pushed a chair out of the way, hating how it scraped on the floor, and hunched low to peer out over the windowsill. She reached for the light switch and snapped the lights off. There, she could see more clearly. Backpack man was staring at her window as he crossed the street lightly slapping the bat against his palm as he came. The mist had coalesced in her yard. She saw him come into her yard, unhampered by an iron fence that didn't exist in his world. He stood in the roses just below her kitchen window and stared up at her. His pale eyes focused past her. He studied her window, then threw back his head and shouted, Sarah! The word reached her, faint but clear. He stepped back, searching the window for her. She remained frozen. He can't see me. I'm not in his world. Even if he knows my name, he can't see me. He looked at the upper windows of her house and shook his head in frustration. Sarah! 
he shouted again. You are there. You hear me. Come out. Behind him, his cohorts took it up. Sarah! They chorused to the night. Come out, Sarah! The others drifted closer to Flank Backpack Man. They knew her name. Before they killed Linda, had they learned her name? And what else? The little girl took up the cry, her voice a thin echo. She stood close by the man who held her hand, not his captive, her protector. Sarah slipped from her chair, folding down on the floor, her heart racing so she could scarcely breathe. Tears came, and she huddled under her table, shaking, terrified that at any moment the window would shatter to his bat, or he would step in through the open doorway. What a fool she was! Of course the child was part of their group. They would have a foraging territory, just like any group of primates. The gift she had thrown, intending only kindness to a hungry child, had lured them here. The man out there wasn't a fool. He'd seen Sarge come out of nowhere, the dog he had probably hunted down for meat. He'd know there was something mysterious about her house. Had Linda told him something before they killed her and took her things? How much had she told? Had she been pursued by them? Had she led them here when she tried to cross back into this world? Too many questions. She was shaking with terror. She clenched her teeth to keep them from chattering, tried not to breathe lest they hear her panting. She squeezed her eyes shut and tried to be utterly still. She heard the door creak on its hinges. The rising wind pushing cold air into the room, or the man with the baseball bat. She curled tighter, put her hands over her head and closed her eyes. Don't move, she told herself. Stay still until the danger was gone. Mom, what the hell? Are you all right? Did you fall? Why didn't you call me? Alex, face white, on his knees by the kitchen table, peering at her. Can you move? Can you speak? Was it a stroke? She blinked and tried to make sense of what she saw. Alex had his coat on, snowflakes on his shoulders, a wool watch cap pulled down over his ears, cold air flowing in from the open back door. I think I just fell asleep here, she said, and as his eyes widened, she tried to make repairs by saying, Fell asleep reading at the table. I must have slid right down here without waking up. Reading what? he demanded wearily. She tried to hide how much it hurt to roll her hands and knees and crawl out from under the table. She had to grab hold of the chair seat to lever herself up and then onto it. The kitchen table was bare. Well, how odd, she exclaimed and forced a smile onto her face. And what brings you by here today? Your neighbors, he said heavily. Marine called. She was on her way up to emergency with Hugh. She couldn't stop, but she saw that your back door was open, but your lights weren't on. She didn't see any footprints in the snow, and she was worried about you, so I came. How's Hugh? I didn't ask. I came here instead. She looked at the kitchen floor. The delta of melting snow showed where the storm had blown into her kitchen. She'd slept curled on the floor with the door open during a snowstorm. She creaked past him to the coffee pot without a word. She went to turn it on and saw the burned crust of dried coffee in the bottom of the pot. She moved methodically as she washed the pot, measured water, and put grounds into a clean filter. She pushed the button. No light came on. I think you probably burned it out, Alex said heavily. He reached past her to unplug it. He didn't look at her as he took off the pot, threw away the grinds, and dumped the water down the sink. 
I think you must have left it turned on for a long time to evaporate that much coffee. He pulled her small garbage can from under the sink. The can was full. He tried unsuccessfully to stuff the coffee maker into it, and then left it perched crookedly on top. He was quiet as he put water into two mugs and set them both in the microwave. She went and got the broom and swept the snow out the door, and then wiped up the water that remained. It hurt to bend. She was so stiff, but didn't dare groan. Alex made instant coffee for both of them, and then sat down heavily at her table. He gestured at the chair opposite, and she reluctantly joined him. Do you know who I am? He asked her. She stared at him. You're my son, Alex, and you're 42, and your birthday was last month and your wife has two children, I'm not losing my mind. He opened his mouth and then shut it. What year is this? he demanded. 2011, and Barack Obama is president, and I don't like him or the Tea Party. Are you going to give me a handful of change now and ask me how much more I need to make a dollar? Because I saw the same stupid does-your-aging-parent-have-Alzheimer's quiz in last week's Sunday paper. It wasn't a quiz, It was a series of simple tests to check mental acuity. Mom, maybe you can make change and tell me who I am, but you can't explain why you were sleeping on the floor under the table with the back door open, or why you let the coffee pot boil dry. He looked around abruptly. Where's Sarge? She told the truth. He ran away. I haven't seen him for days. The silence grew long. He looked at the floor guiltily and spoke in a gruff voice. You should have called me. I would have done that for you. I didn't have him put down. He got out of the yard and ran off when a stranger shouted at him. She looked away from him. He was only five. That's not old for a dog. Bobby called me a couple nights ago. He said he came home from working late and saw you carrying groceries into the house at midnight. So? So why were you buying groceries in the middle of the night? Because I ran out of hot chocolate and I wanted some for watching a late show, so I ran to the store for it, and while I was there I thought I might as well pick up some other things I needed. Lie upon lie upon lie. She wouldn't tell him that the clock no longer mattered to her, wouldn't say that time no longer controlled her. They cycled off. She heard it give a final tick, and realized that it had been running constantly since she'd awakened. Probably it had run all night long. Alex didn't believe her. Mom... You can't live alone anymore. You're doing crazy things, and the crazy things are getting to be dangerous. She stared into her mug. There was something final in his voice, something more threatening than a stranger with a baseball bat. I don't want to drag you to the doctor and get a statement that you are no longer competent. I'd like us both to keep our dignity and avoid all that. He stopped and swallowed, and she suddenly knew he was close to tears. She turned her head and stared out the window. An ordinary winter day. Gray skies, wet streets. Alex sniffed and cleared his throat. I'm going to call Sandy and see if she can get a few days off and come stay with you. We have to get a handle on how to proceed. I wish you would let me get started on this months ago. He rubbed his cheeks, and she heard the bristle of unshaven whiskers against his palms. He'd left his house in a panic. Marines call it scared him. Mom, we need to clear out the house and put it on the market. You can come stay with me, or maybe Sandy can make room for you, until we can find an assisted living placement for you. Placement. 
like putting something on a shelf. No, she said quietly. Yes, he said. He sighed as if he were breathing his life out. I can't give in to you again, Mom. I've let things go by too many times. He stood up. When I came in here and saw you, I thought you were dead. And what flashed into my mind was that I was going to have to tell Sandy that I let you die on the floor alone because I didn't have the strength to stand up to you. He heaved another sigh. I need to put you into a safe place so that I can stop worrying about you. I'm sorry that I frightened you. Sincere words. She held back the other words, the ones that would tell him she would go down fighting, that neither he nor Sandy was going to keep her in a guest room like a guinea pig in a glass tank, nor board her out to a kennel for the elderly. She only listened after that. He told her that he would call Sandy, that he'd be back tomorrow or Thursday at the latest. Would she be all right? Yes. Would she please stay in the house? Yes. He would call her every few hours today, and tonight he'd call her at bedtime. So would she please keep the phone near her, because if she didn't answer, he was coming back here? Yes. Yes to everything he said. Not because she agreed or promised, but because yes was the word that would make him feel safe enough to go away. Then she asked, What about Richard? Tomorrow is Thursday. I always go see Richard on Thursdays. For a moment he was silent. Then he said, He doesn't know what day you come. He doesn't even know it's you. You could never go again and he wouldn't miss you. I would miss him, she said fiercely. I always go on Thursday mornings. Tomorrow, I'm going to see him, she stood up. Mom, yesterday was Thursday. After Alex finally drove away, she made herself hot tea, found the ibuprofen and sat down to think. She recalled the men standing in the street last night, the backpack man right outside her window, and a river of chill ran down her spine. She was in danger, and there was absolutely no one she would turn to for advice without running herself into even greater danger. Backpack man might kill her with an aluminum baseball bat, but her family was contemplating something much worse. Death by bat would only happen once. If her children put her somewhere safe, She'd wake up there day after day and night after night to a woman who had broken free of time. That meant an eternity of cafeteria meals and time spent in a Spartan room. Alone, because soon Alex would decide that it didn't matter if he visited her. She knew that now. For the next few days, she answered promptly whenever Alex called. She was bright and chipper on the phone, pretending enthusiasm for television movies that she cribbed from the TV guide. Twice she called down to Marines, and twice she wasn't home. Sarah moved the accumulating newspapers off her doorstep and suspected Hugh was dying. Sarah set the clocks to remind her when to go to bed and remained there, head on the pillow, blankets over her, until another clock rang to tell her to rise. She did not look out of the kitchen windows before ten or after five, the day that a flash of motion caught her eyes and she looked out the window to see the girl run past in her hat the colors of freshly fallen acorns. She rose from the kitchen table and went to her bedroom to lay on the bed and watched the Jerry Springer show. The nursing home called to tell her that Richard had pneumonia. She sneaked out that day, caught the bus, and spent the whole morning with him. He didn't know her. 
They had taped an oxygen tube under his nose, and the pink hissing sound reminded her of a balloon endlessly going flat. She tried to talk over it, couldn't, and just sat holding his hand. He stared at the wall, waiting. The next evening, Sandy arrived. It startled Sarah when she walked in the front door without knocking, but she was glad to see her. She had driven over the mountains with her friend, a gaunt, morose woman who smoked cigarettes in the house and fountained apologies for forgetting that she couldn't. Sandy had bought Safeway Deli Chinese food, and they ate at Sarah's table, out of styrofoam clamshells. The friend and Sandy talked of the friend's divorce from that bastard, and of Sandy's upcoming divorce from that idiot. Sarah hadn't known a divorce was in Sandy's future. When she had gently asked why, Sandy had suddenly gulped, gasped that it was too complicated to explain and fled the room, with her friend trailing after her. Sarah had numbly tidied up the kitchen and waited for her to come back down. When neither of them did, she eventually went to bed. That was the first day. The next morning, Sandy and the friend arose and began stripping the unused bedrooms that had been Alex's and Sandy's when they were teens. Sarah felt a mixture of relief and regret as she watched them finally emptying the closets and drawers of the precious mementos that Sarah and Russ had longed to discard for years. Lightening the load, Sandy called it, as they discarded old clothing and high school sports gear and required reading paperbacks and ancient magazines and binders. One by one they carried the bulging black garbage sacks down the stairs and mounted them by the back porch. Time to simplify, Sandy's friend chortled cheerily each time she toted out another sack. They ate sandwiches at lunch and then brought back pizza and beer for dinner. After dinner, they went right back to work. Sandy's friend had a laugh like a donkey's bray. Sarah escaped her cigarette smoke by going out into the dusky backyard. The evening was rainy, but when she stood under the copper beach, little of the water reached her. She stared out at the street, empty, empty and fog-free. A calm neighborhood of mowed lawns and well-tended houses and shiny cars. Sandy came out with another bulging garbage bag. Sarah gave her daughter a rueful smile. Better tie them shut, dear. The rain will ruin the clothing. The dump won't care, Mom. The dump? You're not taking them to goodwill? Sandy gave a martyred sigh. Second-hand stores have gotten really picky. They won't take a lot of this stuff, and I don't have time to sort it. If I take all these bags there, they'll refuse half of them, and I'll just have to go to the dump anyway, so I'll save myself a trip by going straight to the dump. Sarah was drawing breath to protest, but Sandy had already turned and gone back for more. She shook her head. Tomorrow, she would sort them herself, and then call one of the charities for a pickup. She simply couldn't allow all that useful clothing and paperbacks to go to a dump. As the friend plopped down another sack, a seam split, and a shirt Sarah recognized popped from it. Sandy came behind her friend with another bag. Wait a minute! That's your father's shirt! One of his good Pendletons! Was that in your room? Sarah was almost amused at the idea that a shirt Sandy must have borrowed so many years ago would have been in her room. But as she came smiling... But as she came smiling to the bag, she saw another familiar plaid behind it. What's this? She demanded as she drew out the sleeve of Russia's shirt. Oh, Mom. Oh, Mom. Sandy had been caught, but she wasn't repentant.
We've started on Dad's closet. But relax. It's all men's clothing. Nothing you can use. And it has to go. Has to go? What are you talking about? Sandy sighed again. She dropped the bag she carried and explained carefully. The house has to be emptied so it can be staged by a realtor. I promise there's nothing in these bags that you can take with you. She shook her head at the shock in her mother's face and added in a gentler voice, Let it go, Mom. There's no reason to hang on to this clothing anymore. It's not Dad. It's just his old shit. If she had used any other word, perhaps Sarah would have felt sorrow rather than anger. Any other word. And perhaps she would have responded rationally. But shit? Shit? His shit? No, Sandy, this is not his shit. Those are his clothes. The clothes and possessions of a man I loved. Do what you want with your old things, but those are mine, and I am not throwing them away. When the time comes for me to part with them, I'll know it. And then they will go somewhere they can do someone some good. Not to the dump. Sandy squeezed her eyes shut and shook her head. Can't put this off any longer, Mom. You know it's why I came. I've only got this weekend to get all this stuff cleared out. I know it's hard, but you have to let us do it. We don't have time for you to be picky about it. Sarah couldn't breathe. Had she agreed to this? When Alex had been there, talking and nagging, and she had said, Yes, yes, but it didn't matter she'd agreed to this, this destruction of her life? No, not this fast. Not like this. No, no, Sandy. She spoke as firmly as if Sandy were still a teenager. You are going to take all of my things back upstairs. Do you hear me? This stops now. The friend spoke in a low voice. Your brother warned you about this. Now you've upset her. She dropped her cigarette and ground it on the porch step. She left the butt there. Maybe you should call your bro. She looks really confused. Sarah spun to confront the friend. I'm standing here, she shouted. And you and your stinking cigarettes can get out of my house right now. I'm not confused. I'm furious. Sandy, you should be ashamed of yourself going through other people's things. You were taught better. What is the matter with you? Sandy's face went white, then scarlet. Anger flashed across it, to be caged by dignity. Mom, I hate to see you like this. I have to be honest. Your mind is slipping. Alex has been updating me. He told me he'd talk to you about this, and that you looked at the brochures together and chosen a couple of places you'd like. Don't you remember at all? We talked. That was all. Nothing was decided. Nothing. Sandy shook her head sadly. That's not what Alex said. He said you'd agreed, but he was taking it slow. But since... But since that last incident, we have to act right away. Do you remember how he found you, crouching under your table with the door open in a snowstorm? The friend was shaking her head pityingly. Sarah was horrified. Alex had told Sandy, and Sandy had spread it to her friends. That is none of your business, she said stiffly. Sandy threw up her hands and rolled her eyes. Really, Mom? Really? Do you think we can just walk off and say, not my problem? Because we can't. We love you. We want to do what is right. Alex has been talking to several nice senior communities with lovely amenities. He's got it all figured out. And if we use your social security and dad's pension, 
Alex and I can probably scrape enough extra to get you into a nice place until the house sells. After that... No, Sarah said it flatly. She stared at Sandy, appalled. Who was this woman? How could she think she could just walk in and begin making decisions about Sarah's life? Get out, she said. Sandy glanced at her friend, who hadn't budged. She was watching both of them, her mouth slightly ajar, like a Jerry Springer's spectator. Sandy spoke to her apologetically. You'd better go for now, Heidi. I need to calm my mom down. Why don't you take the car and... You, Sandy! I'm talking to you! Get out! Sandy's face went slack with shock. Her eyes came back to life first, and for a moment she looked eleven, and Sarah would have done anything to take back her words. Then her friend spoke knowingly. I told you that you should have called your bro. Sandy huffed a breath. (sighs) You were right. We should have gotten the guardianship done and moved her out first. You were right. Cold rushed through Sarah's body. You just try it, Missy. You just try it. Tears were leaking from Sandy's eyes now. The friend rushed to put a protective arm around her. Come on, Sandy. Let's go. We'll get some coffee and call your bro. Even after the door had slammed behind them, and she had rushed over to lock it, Sarah couldn't calm down. She paced. Her hands trembled as she put on the kettle for tea. She climbed the stairs and looked at the chaos they had created. She climbed the stairs and looked at the chaos they had created. In the kids' bedrooms, there were boxes neatly taped shut and labeled with their names. And across the hall, in the bedroom she and Russ had once shared, there were more boxes and half-filled garbage sacks. With a lurch of her heart, she recognized her old hiking jacket poking out of one. She pulled it out slowly and looked at it. It was still fine. There was nothing wrong with it. She put it on and zipped it, tighter around her middle than it had been. But it still fit. It was still hers, not theirs. Her gaze traveled slowly from sprawled bags to neatly stacked FedEx cardboard boxes. Each was labeled either Sandy or Alex, but one was labeled Heidi. Sarah tore the tape and dumped it out on the bed. Russ's ski parka, two of his heavy leather belts, his meerschaum pipe, his silver Zippo lighter, his tobacco humidor. She picked up the little wooden barrel and opened it. The aroma of old hickory tobacco drifted out to her, and tears stung her eyes. Anger suddenly fired her. She dumped out all the boxes and bags on the floor. Alex's box held Ross's sheath knife from his hunting days, some wool winter socks, still with the labels on. The little twenty-two and its ammunition were in one of Sandy's boxes, along with Russ's thirty-five millimeter camera in its case. The extra lenses and the little tripod was in there, too. His Texas instrument calculator, the first one he'd ever owned, and so expensive when she got it for his Christmas gift. A couple of his ties, and his old Timex watch. She sank down to the floor, holding the watch in her hand. She lifted it to her ear, shook it, and listened again. Silence. As still as his heart. She got to her feet slowly, looked around the ransacked room, and then left it, closing the door softly behind her. She'd clean it up later, put it all back where it belonged. Halfway down the stairs, she knew that she wouldn't. There was no sense to it. Sandy had been right about that, at least. What did all the trappings mean if there was no man to go with them? The kettle was whistling, and when she picked it up, it was almost dry. 
The phone began to ring. She wanted to ignore it. Caller ID said it was Alex. She spoke before he could. They were ransacking the house, putting all your father's things into sacks to take to the dump. If that's how you're going to help me, how you're going to keep me safe, then I'd rather be... Abruptly, she couldn't think of anything to say. She hung up the phone. It rang again, and she let it, counting the rings until her answering machine picked up. She listened to Russ's voice answering the phone and waited for Alex's angry shout. Instead, an apologetic voice said that they hated to leave this sort of message on the phone, but they had been trying to reach her all day without success. Richard had died that morning. They'd notified the funeral home, listed on his purple cross card, and his body had been picked up. His personal possessions had been boxed for her and could be claimed at the front desk. The voice offered his deepest condolences. She stood frozen, unable to move toward the phone. Silence flowed in after that call. When the phone rang again, she took the receiver off the hook, opened the back, and jerked out the batteries. The box on the wall kept ringing. She tugged it off the wall mount and unplugged it. Silence came back, filling her ears with a different sort of ringing. What to do? What to do? One or both of her children would be on the way back now. Richard was dead. His body was gone. All his possessions taped up in a box. Russ was gone. She had no allies left. No one who remembered who she had been. The people who loved her most were the ones who presented the gravest danger to her. They were coming. She was nearly out of time out of time. She made a mug of black tea and carried it outside with her. The rain had stopped and the night was chill. Abruptly, she was glad of the coat she wore. She watched the mist form. It wove itself among the wet tree branches and then detached to drop and mingle with the grayness rising from the trickling street gutters. They met in the middle, swirled together, and the street light at the end of the street suddenly went out. The traffic sounds died with it. Sarah sipped bitter black tea and waited for that other world to form beyond the mist. It took shape slowly. Illuminated windows faded to black as the gray rolled down the street toward her. The silhouettes of the houses across the street shifted slightly, roofs sagging, chimneys crumpling, as saplings hulked up into cracked and aging trees. The fog thickened into a fat, mounded bank and rolled toward her. She waited, one decision suddenly clear. When it reached the fence, she picked up a garbage sack full of discarded possession, whirled it twice, and tossed it. It flew into the mist and reappeared in that other place, landing in the littered street, another bag, another. By the fourth bag, she was dizzy from whirling, but they were too heavy to toss any other way. She forced herself to go on, bag after bag, until her lawn was emptied of them. Better than the dump, she told herself. Better than a landfill. Dizzy and breathless, she staggered up the porch steps and went to her bedroom. She opened the blind on the upstairs bedroom window and looked out. The fog had rolled into her yard. It billowed around her house like waves against a dock. Good. She opened the window, bag after bag, box after box she shoved out. Sandy and Alex would find nothing left of her here. Nothing for them to throw out or tidy away. Until only the gun and the plastic box of ammunition remained on the floor. She picked it up. Black metal cold to the touch. She pushed the catch and the empty clip fell into her hand. She sat down on the bed and opened the plastic box of ammo. One little bullet after another, she fed the clip until it was full. The magazine snapped into place with a sound like a door shutting. 
No, that was the front door shutting. She jammed the ammunition box into her jacket pocket. She held the gun as Russ had taught her, pointing down as she went down the stairs. They were in the living room. She heard Alex ask something in an impatient voice. Sandy whined an excuse. The friend interrupted. Well, you weren't here. Sandy was doing the best she could. Sarah hurried down the hall and into the kitchen. Her heart was pounding so that she could barely hear them now, but she knew they were coming. She opened the kitchen door and stepped out. The fog lapped at the bottom steps. Out in the street, the voices of Backpack Man and his scavengers were clearer than she had ever heard them. They had found the things she had thrown out there. Boots! One man shouted in excitement. Two of the others were quarreling over Russ's old coat. Backpack Man was striding purposefully toward them, perhaps to claim it for himself. One took off running. He shouted something about the others. Mom? Alex's voice calling her from inside the house. Mom? Sandy's light footsteps in the kitchen. Mom, where are you? Please, we're not angry. We just need to talk to you. The fog had lapped over another step. Her porch light was dimming. Backpack man would likely kill her. Her children would put her away. The little twenty-two handgun was cold and heavy in her hand. She stepped off the porch. The concrete step she had swept a few days ago was squishy with moss under her foot. Mom? Mom? Alex, we should call the police. Sandy's voice was rising to hysteria. The phone's been torn off the wall. Let's not be something, something, something. His voice went fuzzy like a radio signal. Their worried conversation became distant, buzzing, static. She tottered into the dark garden. The ground was uneven. She waded through tall, wet weeds. The copper beach was still there, and she hid in its deep shade. In the street, the silhouettes of the men intently rooted through the bags and boxes. They spoke in low, excited voices as they investigated their find. Others were coming to join them. In the distance, there was an odd creaking, like a strange bird cry. Sarah braced her hands on the tree and blended her shadow with the trunk, watching them. Some of the newcomers were probably females in bulky clothes. The girl was there, and another, smaller child. They were rummaging in a box, peering at paperback titles in the moonlight. Two of the men closed in on the same garbage bag. One seized hold of a shirt sticking out of a tear and jerked on it. But the other man already had hold of its sleeve. An angry exclamation, a fierce tug. And then as one man possessed it, the other leaped on him. Fists flew. A man went down with a hoarse cry. The backpack man cursed them, brandishing his aluminum bat as he ran at them. Sarah cringed behind the tree and measured her distance to the kitchen. The house windows still gleamed, but the light was grayish-blue. Like the fading light from a dying Coleman lantern, inside the room her children passed as indistinct shadows. It wasn't too late. She could still go back. The friend lit a cigarette. She saw the flare of the match, the glow as she drew on it. The friend waved a hand, commiserating with Sandy and Alex. Sarah turned away from the window. She took a breath. The air was cool and damp, rich with the smells of hummus and rot. Out on the street, Backpack Man stood between the quarreling men. He held the shirt high in one hand and the bat in the other. Daddy! The little girl cried and ran toward them. One of the men was sprawled in the street. The other man stood, still gripping his sleeve, hunched and defiant. The girl ran to him, wrapped herself around him. Let go! 
Backpack Man warned them both. A hush had fallen over the tribe as they stared, awaiting Backpack Man's judgment. The distant creaking grew louder. Backpack Man raised his bat threateningly. Sarah gripped the gun in both hands, stepped from the tree's shadow, and thumbed off the safety. She had not known that she remembered how to do that. She'd never been a great shot. His chest was the largest target, and she couldn't afford a warning shot. You! she shouted as she waded through the low fog bank and out into that world. Drop the bat, or I'll shoot. What did you do to Linda? Did you kill her? Where is she? Backpack man spun toward her, bat held high. Don't think, she pointed and fired, terror and resolve indistinguishable from one another. The bullet spanged the bat and whined away, hitting the Murphy's house with a solid thwack. Backpack man dropped the bat and clutched his hand to his chest. Where's Linda? she screamed at him. She advanced on him, both hands on the gun, trying to hold it steady on his chest. The others had dropped their loot and faded back. I'm here. Damn it, Sarah, you took your sweet time. But it looks like you thought to bring a lot more than I did, Linda cackled wildly. Bring any good socks in there? The creaking was a garden cart, festooned with a string of LEDs. A halo of light illuminated it as Linda pushed it before her. The cart held two jerry cans, a loop of transparent tubing, and the tool roll from the truck. Three more battered carts, similarly lit, followed her in a solemn procession. As Sarah's mind scrambled to put it all in context, she heard the rattle of toenails on pavement, and a much skinnier Sarge raced up to her, wriggling and wagging in excitement. They weren't dead. She wasn't alone. Sarah stooped and hugged the excited dog, letting him lap the tears off her cheeks. Linda gave her time to recover as she barked her orders at the tribe. Benny, you come here and take this. Crank this fifty times and it will light up. Hector, you know how to siphon gas. Check that old truck. We need every drop we can get if to keep the generac running. Carol, you pop the hood and salvage the battery. The scavengers came to her, accepting the jerry cans and the siphon tube. Backpack man bobbed about to her before accepting the crank light. As he turned away, Linda smiled at her. They're good kids. A bit rough around the edges, but they're learning fast. You should have seen their faces the first time I fired up the generator. I know where to look for stuff like that. It was in the basement of that clinic on 30th. Sarah was speechless. Her eyes roved over Linda. Like the dog, she had lost weight and gained vitality. She hobbled toward Linda on the ragged remnants of her bedroom slippers. She gave a call of laughter when she saw Sarah staring at her feet. Yes, I know, dotty old woman. Thought of so many things. Solar lights and a crank flashlight, aspirin and sugar cubes and so on. And then walked out of the door in my slippers. Robbie was right. My trolley was definitely off the tracks. But it doesn't matter so much over here. Not when the tracks are torn up for everyone. Russ's hiking boots are in one of those bags. Sarah heard herself say, Damn, you thought of everything. Cold weather gear, books, and a pistol. I'd never have thought it of you. You pack any food? Sarah shook her head wordlessly. Linda looked at the gun she still held, muzzled down at her side, and nodded knowingly. Didn't plan to stay long, did you? I could go back and get some, Sarah said, but as she looked back at her house, the last lights of the past faded. Her home was a wreck, broken windows and tumble-down chimney. Her grapevines cloaked the ruins of the collapsed porch. Can't go back, Linda confirmed for her. She shook her head and then clarified. For one, I don't want to. 
She looked around at her tribe. Petey, pick up that bat. Remind everyone we carry everything back and divvy up at the clinic. Not here on the street in the dark. Don't tear the bags and boxes. Put the stuff back in them and let's hump it on home. Yes, Linda. Backpack man bobbed about to her. Around her in the darkness, the others were moving to obey her. The girl stood, staring at both of them. Her mittened hands clasped together. Linda took a bony finger at her. You get busy, missy. Then she motioned to Sarah to come closer. What do you think? She asked her. Do you think Maureen will be ready soon? There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Mosuli Megan Lynn Holmes. Megan, thank you so much. And Peter, what can I say? Big thank you, sir. Big thank you. Links are on to all our reader and narrator. That's the same thing, isn't it? And our writer. <laughs> God loves a trier. Don't forget, this show is sponsored by Octagon Technologies. 20 years in the business, bringing IT solutions to the north, to the north, I was going to say the northeast of England, to England in the Lincolnshire area. Clive, Diane, couldn't have done it without you. Thank you so much for kind of helping out. And while we're on, we're still going on with the kind of YouTube thing. Everyone's kind of, everything's progressing there as well. We're getting kind of artworks all starting to fall into place there now. Scripts are being wrote and everything. And yes. So look out. Do we do SovaCon 3 again? Uh, I don't know. Do you know what I mean? We'll, we'll see how it goes. Do you know what I mean? Like say two days was a, a kind of... A hellish blast of kind of intense work, which is not, I don't mind that. It's just, do you know what I mean? Do we do it? I don't know. We'll see, we'll see how it goes. I, I loved it. Do you know what I mean? Totally loved it. But I don't want to kind of put me stamp on just yet. But I do want to kind of have a little go at maybe doing the odd day one. Do you know what I mean? Because they can rattle, rattle them off. Like, hey, well, hi. So maybe like the life, you know, the kind of end, enjoying the works of Philip K. Dick or something like that. You know what I mean? Or science fiction well we'll see how it goes but anyways until next week just like to say a massive thank you from me will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal can they win through with their integrity unscathed can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Story Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.